tonight, um, this lecture is our sixth lecture in the bunk series. Um, and it's actually the first lecture when I get to use a swear word to describe it. In the 17 years I've been doing this job, I've never been allowed to swear professionally. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, thank you. Um, and our speakers are University of Washington's very own Jevin West and Carl Bergstrom. For those of you who don't know, Jevin West is an assistant professor in the information school and co-director of the Data Lab. His research is interested in the origin of scholarly disciplines and how sociological and economic factors drive and slow the evolution of science. Carl Bergstrom is a professor in the Department of Biology and a member of the external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. His research interests range from evolutionary theory to animal communication, to bibliometrics, to whatever the uh, other members of his group are working on apparently at the moment. He's a pretty go with the flow guy. Um, and together they co-teach the wildly popular course called uh, Calling Bullshit here at the University of Washington. So there's my bad word for the year. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, in this course, which debuted to much internet and academic acclaim in 2017, it aims to teach students how to think critically about the data and models that constitute evidence in the social and natural sciences. And tonight, they are bringing their expertise to us, the public. Um, we want to welcome Jevin West and Carl Bergstrom. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's right. Thanks. Thank, Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, I want to thank Yvette and I want to thank Molly for organizing this and thank you to all of you for coming out. I know it takes a lot of effort to get in the car and fight traffic and come here. So thank you so much and also thank to some of, we see some of our students in the audience as well. So I am Jevin and this is Carl and uh, we're going to hopefully have a little bit of fun but talk about what we think is a, a fairly serious topic. So one of the more salient features of the 21st century is that we are inundated with information. And the problem is, much of that is bullshit. I'll use bullshit just once. Actually, that's it. I'll use BS the rest of the time. And you know, we know this is partly driven by our politicians being unconstrained by facts, but it's also this hyperpartisan media pand pandering to our po political predilections. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. The headlines that we do read are simply replaced. They're, they're sort of driven by this clickbaitness that we see in the digital world, I'll stay off this because you, you'll get too, too much entertainment on this slide. Um, advertisers, we, we know what advertisers are doing. They're always feeding us with the steady dose of hyperbole. And even now that uh, we're sort of working at university, I'm starting to realize that administrative activity often amounts to a sophisticated exercise in the combinatorial reassembly of weasel words. Um, I think everyone's sort of familiar with that. And we're going to talk a lot about social media. So let's, you know, what, what does the average American do when, uh, you know, for two hours a day on social media? Mostly spreading BS. But what we're going to do today is, we're, we, so we know, you know, our information environments uh, are torrential. They're overwhelming. They're addictive. They're unreliable. And they're insincere. We all know that. It's maybe one of the reasons you're all here today. So what we're going to try to do, Carl and I are going to try to at least address three questions. And there's no way we can get through in depth on all three questions, but hopefully it'll be enough to spark some good conversation after we're done. We encourage you to, to come up to the mics and, and, and ask your questions and leave your comments. So let's start with, how do we get here, Carl? OK, thank you, Jevin. So, um, so how did we end up here? Well, um, I think that. Uh, what I want to really stress to start with is, is this one idea, which is that the medium in which we communicate 
has a great influence on what it is that we say and how those messages that we put together end up spreading. And uh, so, I mean, let's, let's start way, way back. Let's go way back to sort of a, a pre-literate society and think about what kinds of information are available at the time. And so you can have, uh, you, can have you know, uh, important stories, myths and epics, and, and the things that people can remember to tell around a fire, you could sort of imagine. But in particular, there are certain things you can't easily have. It's very hard to, for example, keep numerical records or something like that. You can't, you know, if you're going to keep tax records or keep uh, ledgers of debts or something like that, and Jevon will say that he, uh, that, that I owed him 20 bucks, and I'll say, I don't remember that at all, <laughs> and it, that's not a good way to write those things down, and so, you know, or to, you can't, you need to write those things down, and so when writing gets developed, uh, one theory is that writing is developed in large part to create numerical tables and ledgers to keep tax records, to keep ledgers of accounts and debts and things like this. And so this is a, this is a numerical table um, in cuneiform, obviously. Now, that solves the problem of the permanency. And so now new things can be said, right? Things that you couldn't say around the campfire. We can keep these numerical records. Um, and, and you can start to you know, also keep larger libraries of things. But tablets are an inefficient way to store information because they're big and they crack and all of that. And so eventually, we move on to papyrus and paper. And we are able to create these magnificent libraries that hold vastly more information in a single space. And now that expands the scope of information that humankind can, can perpetuate from one generation to the next. So the technology is actually changing what gets said, what stories get told, what stories get write, written down and kept. But the problem is, you know, when we're, even at this time, the, the production technology is still extremely labor intensive. These books are being created by hand. People, scribes are writing out these manuscripts by hand. And it's extremely expensive to possess a book, to produce a book. And that has two major effects. One, it's strongly limiting who can have books in their home. Only the very wealthy um, can have books. And it's also strongly limiting who gets to decide what's written down. Because only the people with the money to be able to um, to solicit these books to be written, which is essentially the church and the, the, the nobles, um, are able to actually uh, commission these books to be written down. And so because the, the production technology is therefore limiting who has a voice in this larger conversation. Of course, you all know this gets replaced, um, you know, this gets sort of overturned when the printing press is developed. And, uh, and you might think, wow, you know, what, a, what a wonderful innovation. But at the time, there's tremendous reluctance um, to accept this, this change. And so um, you know, well, over, uh, well over 500 years ago, Filippo de Strada um, was probably standing up giving a talk rather like this about how the whole world is going to hell. And he says, writing indeed, which brings in gold for us, should be respected and held nobler than all other goods unless she has suffered degradation in the brothel of the printing presses. So uh, this was going to, the printing press was going to be a disaster. It was going to, and he actually picked up on many of these themes. He said, you know, look, now it's going to be terrible. Uh, they're going to print all kinds of things. The youth are going to read Ovid. It's going to be a mess. Um, <laughs> and seriously, he's, he, this, is in the, this is in this letter. Um, and, but, you know, it seems that we survived this. And so leaping forward on into the 20th century, 
Um, you know, now, now we've got printing press technology everywhere. And, uh, and so now all of a sudden book, you know, book production is cheap. Um, people, ordinary people can own books in their homes. All kinds of different books can be produced, not just the ones that the nobles and the church think are worthwhile. And you get this other wonderful innovation, uh, the lending library, which instead of meaning that people can have a few books that are very, very precious, more or less anyone uh, with access to a city library can have access to the world's information. And this is this revolutionary um, development, of course. So we see this sort of consistently uh, changing notion of what information is out there based on the kinds of technology that are available. It all seems great, but uh, then um, things take a, take a turn for the worse. This is Neil Postman. The invention of new and various kinds of communication has given a voice and an audience to many people whose opinions would otherwise not be solicited and who, in fact, have little else but verbal excrement to contribute to public issues. It's a perfect description of the internet, right? So Neil Postman wrote this in 1969. He's talking about the rise of actually you know, early cable television. He's talking, and, and just pure entertainment television. He's talking about trashy magazines, um, that kind of thing. So he's already saying, and this is a constant theme you see all along, is that every, you know, every generation gets up here and gives this lecture. Um, <laughs> but but it, it's, it's our turn, <laughs> and to some degree our obligation. Um, so that's Neil Postman in 69. Uh, of course, then you get the development of these sort of pre-internet systems like MTS here at Michigan, or then, then eventually the internet. There's this marvelous idea. Let's take all the world's computers and link them together. Um, and each computer can store its own information, but then they can swap the information. And that massively expands the scope of the kinds of information that's stored on the, on, uh, in the world. All kinds of things that weren't writing, worth writing a book about now become worth writing down. Because, you know, for example, there are, you know, there are probably 15 people in the world that are really into collecting Thomas the Tank Engine die-cast model trains, right? And so no one's going to write a book for them, but I can guarantee you there's going to be a website somewhere out there where these you know, model numbers and everything are all recorded. And there's this sort of long tail of human interests that can get captured once someone has this amazing idea to link together all of these computers and, and let them all exchange information. And again, the technology is changing the stories that can be told and the information that can be stored. And that's, you know, and that's sort of the ongoing theme that's going on here. So what happens and what gets us all excited about the internet, right, is the internet is going to democratize the production and sharing of information. Everyone is going to be an information producer. We're all going to be able to tell our stories. We're going to have access to these stories that we weren't able to hear prior to the internet. And there's just this enormous optimism in the 1990s, particularly once the World Wide Web take, starts to take off and so on, around this, around this possibility. And to some degree, that works. We've got amazing production of content. We have all these conversations going on on the internet. But there are these problems that there's so much material out there, and it starts to come at us so fast, we don't know how to filter it. We don't know what it is that we can read. How, how can we pick what to read? And that brings us to what sometimes is described as, uh, as Web 2.0, or you might think of as social media. And what happens with social media is we all engage in this ongoing conversation around all of this information, and we end up being the ones who determine what it is that our peers and our friends and our relatives and those around us end up seeing. 
we're the ones that help with that, so we help one another with that sorting process in this large social media conversation. And this is taking off, this is sort of my kids these days slide. So, um, you know, this, this, even in the last few years, there's been a substantial increase. Uh, people spend, uh, these are average Americans spend uh, 2.3 hours a day on, on social media, um, that was last year, and, and it's, you know, it seems like it continues to rise. Uh, of particular uh, importance to this talk, People now get their news from social media. When we teach, it's amazing to us talking to our students, um, you know, and, and, and the, the sort of the importance of social media as, as uh, you know, primary sources of news for them. So uh, half of Americans get their news from Facebook. 11% um, get it from Twitter. People are getting it from Snapchat and Tumblr and WhatsApp and LinkedIn and just places I never would have thought to go looking for news. Now, and it, that may not all be bad, this is bringing the news to us immediately, but it's coming through this social media um, form where we are choosing for one another what we see. You know, I, I get on Twitter and I retweet things and, and that's determining what my friends see or, I'll, uh, or you're on Facebook and you're, and you're sharing things or forwarding articles that you've seen and that's determining what you, other people are seeing. The idea is we were playing the role that throughout all of previous history was played by editors. We were becoming the gatekeepers of information, determining who sees what. And the catch is we are all terrible editors. <laughs> and we're terrible editors for a number of reasons. First of all, we don't have the training. It's non-trivial to learn how to be a good editor. And it certainly doesn't involve reading part of a headline and hitting retweet. Uh, but we also don't have the incentives. Professional editors have a lot of money at stake in backing a book. They've got reputations at stake. They look into what they're doing deeply before they send information on forward. And we don't have those incentives when we share information on the internet. And then finally, and this is tremendously important, you have to think about what it is that we're doing when we choose to share something on the internet. This is an idea that Judith Donath has put forward. Uh, she's a professor at MIT Media Lab, and I think this is tremendously important. She says, in the world of social media, of Facebook and Twitter, news is shared not just to inform or even to persuade. News is used as a marker, sharing news is used as a marker of identity, a way to proclaim your affinity with a particular community. So when I share something on the internet, I'm saying something about myself. I'm not actually saying something about what it is I've shared. So suppose I go on social media and I, and I retweet this, okay, a meme that's going around. Demanded Obama's records won't release his own. Well, I mean, come on, everyone knows that, right? What I'm really saying when I do that is I'm saying, me, I'm with you, the, the resistance, right? Something like that. But here's the thing, I mean, that one was true. Uh, but I'm not signaling about what Trump did. You already knew that he wasn't releasing his records. I'm just saying I'm a person that's bothered by this. Now, the thing that I signal doesn't have to be true. In fact, it would be even more effective the crazier it was. So if I get on there and I say, you know, huge cover-up, secret FBI files show Hillary-funded migrant caravan with laundered drug money, <laughs> that's a very effective way of saying me, I'm with you, the Make America Great Again uh, ensemble. <sighs> okay, so, um, so, so that's, that's social media. There's this other enormous change that's happened in the way that we consume our media that seems kind of technical, um, but it, it's, it's really important. And it's this switch that we've made in the last 15 or 20 years from a subscription-driven model 
where media generates revenue by selling subscriptions or, base, or selling ads that are based on their subscription numbers, so, that, so they're trying to set up subscriptions, to a click-driven model where everything is based on counting up the number of clicks you get and the number of impressions that the ads that you've put on those web pages receive. This is an enormous change because in a subscription-driven model, when I think about subscribing to a newspaper, I'm setting up a sort of a long-term relationship with the newspaper. What do I want to read for the next year? You know, do I want to read the New York Times? Do I want to read People? Like, what is it that I want to read for the next year? When I am making click-driven, so this is these long-term decisions where I can let my best self shine, right? But when, when I'm making click-driven decisions, I'm tempted by various things. I, I must maybe, you know, it, it's just whatever seems the most enticing that's on the page. So, you know, I, last night I wanted to come up with an example. So I just looked at my iPhone. And uh, here's what my iPhone gave me. So there were a couple of, uh, or two, I guess it was two nights ago, a couple of stories that seemed quite, quite appropriate. I, uh, you know, on the eve of the midterms, five underdog candidates. And then, but then I, then I, then I, I just totally got distracted because some celebrity got a bigger butt. <laughs> And, and I was about to click on that, but then there were 17 cats who were so beautiful <laughs> that they could be supermodels. And, and at Carl, that point, what's was, on your phone? I have no idea. I, at, that point, at, that, at that point, I was completely lost. And that's the problem with click-based advertising, right? Is, is, is it appeals to that it. It's, it's like the difference between you know, what's in your Netflix queue of all these you know, foreign films and documentaries and what you end up actually watching. You know, <laughs> So anyway, this was really depressing. I thought, well, okay, you know, that's that's just the general thing. And but at least if I go to like the science section, it's all going to be good. <laughs> Many of you probably saw this. This was all over the news yesterday. CNN. So um, the problem is, is not only are we seeing this, you know, sort of on BuzzFeed or whatever. This is. This kind of clickbait is, is making its way into the regular news media. This is just astonishing to me. Here's the Washington Post. Um, you know, it's a clickbait thing. One-fifth of this occupation has a serious drinking problem. Headlines used to try to inform you. Now they try to entice you and get you to click. With, so they try to not tell you what the story is about. Um, how to evade the leading cause of death in the United States. Could you really in good conscience not click that link, right? Um, <laughs> Donald Trump has discovered one weird trick for getting people to agree with him. You know, CNN, Washington Post, this kind of, and I don't want to, uh, by the way, I don't want to keep people like in suspense. So lawyers, <laughs> accidents for people between 1 and 44, and they don't tell us beyond that. And he says both sides of an issue, which we all knew anyway. Oh, and it's a rock. The, the, uh, um, that's a rock. <laughs> so, um, so these are really, really fundamental changes in the way that, uh, in the, in the way that, that we're getting our news. And they're changing what the incentives are for news producers to uh, create different kinds of stories. And really, the fundamental problem that we're trying to get at here is if you're interested in clickbait, click-based click advertising that then takes off on social media, the unvarnished truth is no longer good enough. We've always lived in a world where we trusted the news media to bring us the unvarnished truth, or at least the truth with a particular varnish that met our political preferences and, and so on. But now we're in a world where it's all about exaggeration. It's all about um, taking things to, to the next level in order to generate that immediate click. So as Carl said, the unvarnished truth just simply isn't good enough. I mean, we wish it, we wish it was, but we are human. And nowadays, in this new environment, we can do the kinds of studies to see what does sell more than truth. 
What are the kinds of things that pull us in? I mean, there's billions of experiments going on at this very second on mar uh, uh, based, uh, by marketers and by search engines and by technology companies. And there's been a lot of recent studies that have looked at what's driving us into these different spaces on the internet. Um, oops, wrong computer. Uh, and, and here's one recent study that we thought was a, a little interesting. If you, look at the, if you go through all these click-driven uh, headlines and you look at the kinds of words, the tokens that are driving people into, or that are most common and that are driving people around the internet, you find these kind of interesting, well, these, these promises that are given to you. They're promises of experience and emotion. And so if you look at this particular, for those that can't see it in the back, you know, the, the most common one that this, uh, this researcher found was it will make you. And can you guess? Um, and the reason is, are you freaking out? That was one of my favorite there. Are you freaking out? Or K-stunning photos. Those, these are the kinds of things that, that pull us in. Although melt your heart is pretty good at the bottom. I think I would probably click on that as well. Um, so these are the kinds of things we can start to look. I mean, there's advantages and disadvantages, of course, of living in this digital world um, that we live now. But we can start to understand a, li a little bit um, what sort of drives us into these spaces. But the question that we're after right now is why are we at where we're at? And of course, one of the simplest problems when you're inundated with information as we started this talk is that most people simply don't read the headlines. They do read the headlines. They don't oh, sorry, read yeah, they, they, sorry. They don't read that. They do read the headlines, but they don't go much further. They share, they tweet. And here it's, you know, 70% of Facebook users only read the headlines of science stories before commenting. This is kind of depressing. But the problem is, the problem is if you actually clicked on this story, this particular story about not reading the headlines, you would find random text. <laughs> Something in computer science that we call lorem ipsum. We just fill certain uh, random text as a filler for designing a website. That is a problem. And if actually, this is an old screen cap, but if you look at the, the, the most recent version of this, we've got tens of thousands more of shares of this. So there's one reason. I mean, partly we're inundated, partly we're busy, and partly, uh, you know, we're just kind of lazy. You don't need to read the story to socially signal. That's, that's part of it, right? If you're doing what Judith Onneth is talking about, it doesn't matter what the story actually says. You can figure out the, the orientation from the That's headline. right. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter what it is. But now let me talk about something that um, maybe some of you heard of, maybe you haven't. How many have, um, have heard of the Fairness Doctrine? Just give me, a, we're just trying to understand how many people may have heard of this. Okay, that's good. So I would say about maybe a quarter, maybe a third of you. This may be something we should be bringing back to discussion. It's not a perfect doctrine, and it's something we should be debating. There was problems with it. But, I, but this is something Carl and I have talked about that may be sort of driving a little bit of of what we're seeing. So what I'm going to do with a couple slides for those that haven't heard, I'm going to talk a little bit about what this fairness doctrine is. So the idea with the fairness doctrine was that broadcasters at the time, it was sort of focused a lot on radio and the broadcasting ability that these, these companies had, that, there, they, they, that uh, people wanted a, you know, a set of rules to make sure that there was honest, fair, and, and sort of equal balance around controversial issues that were relevant to the public. So it was sort of the, you know, it was started in the 1940, early 1940s as the Mayflower Doctrine. I'll just sort of read it. Radio license must not be used for the private interest, whims, or caprices, but in a matter in which will serve the community generally. And so that sort of was the foundations of what we're talking about in the, this foundations, or in the Fairness Doctrine. So the idea was to provide an adequate coverage of issues of public interest. We have those right now. 
and fairly represent both sides of controversial issues. Now, you can see probably issue, other problems that could come along with this, like if we're talking about climate change and sort of having false psychotomies. Um, this, this, uh, this, or this may be a problem, but in, in 1965, 67, it was codified into FCC regulations. And so it wasn't, you know, it was debated, but it was, it was moved um, in, into, um, into sort of the, the public realm of rules. But in 1987, uh, there was debates back and forth, and the FCC revoked this fairness do doctrine for various reasons. Um, and Congress responded and said, no, we definitely need it at the time, but Reagan, um, he vetoed it. And at that, because of this, media are no longer seen as obliged to serve the public interest. And that may be leading, yes, some would debate, to some of the things that we're seeing even in the last couple days. This sort of marriage between a lot of our media and political messages and parties. And this goes on, uh, certainly on both sides. This is left and right. But there's this fusion that seems to be occurring. And maybe those that were talking about the Fairness Doctrine had some had some uh, ideas about what may happen in 2018, which really sort of has happened. But it hasn't always, at least with our hyper-partisan news, it hasn't always been this way. Both MSNBC and Fox started in the, in the year 1996. And at the time, if you ask the, the, the public, they didn't have the sort of um, uh, issues, at least they, they, they couldn't predict necessarily as well as we can now about what kinds of stories they're going to cover. I mean, many of us, if I was to do a little uh, sort of quiz here, I could throw up a story and you could say, yes, Fox is going to cover that one. You could throw up another one, you say MSNBC is going to cover that one. But now, as you can see, it's really sort of uh, 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 split um, you know, dramatically and it keeps going in that direction. And everyone sort of is worried about Facebook and social media. And so Carl and I are too. I mean, as, as everyone, social media is certainly playing a role in this misinformation epidemic that we live in. But I think these major broadcasters of information, the places where uh, information gets verified um, and sort of, uh, you know, sort of okayed, I guess you could say, this is where messages are really being spread, and I think this is something we should be very concerned of because of this really um, polar polarity that we're seeing in society. And after yesterday's election, we see headlines like this. The blue is getting bluer, the red's getting red redder. It's, it's more divided than ever, and it sort of goes to this idea of a, kind of related to what Carl was talking about, um, but tribal epistemology is this idea, you know, you know, how, you know, what would we know is not necessarily based on any sort of empirical method, which we'd hope that's what it would be, but it's based on this a tribal uh, affiliation. So I'm going to know something or I'm going to sort of know that it's true based on my association with a particular tribe. And I think that's, that's something that really, I think, is, 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 could crumble sort of the foundations of the society we have. I think this is something that, that really scares us. There's a second really critical point there around tribal epistemology, which is just that uh, you think 50 years ago, uh, people in different parties largely agreed on what the facts were, but they didn't agree on necessarily what to do about the facts. You know, should we, uh, should we increase government spending? Should we, um, should we uh, uh, you know, lower, the, uh, lower the, the Federal Reserve rate? What, these kinds of things. There were these sort of policy discussions, but a sort of common base of fact. By 2000 or so, we start to get some very strong opinions about, uh, very strong differences across parties about what the fundamental facts of the matter are but we still have largely agreement on how the facts should be established. But by 
2018, we're in a position where we don't agree on what to do, we don't agree on what the facts are, and we don't even agree on what the procedures by which one goes about establishing the facts should be. How important are my gut feelings about things? Should I believe experts? There are huge divides about these sort of things, and we're getting to the point where we're running into severe difficulties having any kind of national dialogue because we can't even agree on a starting point for where we come up with the information we're going to talk about. I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, it's, there, there's this famous uh, uh, little uh, survey they would, they would do with people across the country, do simple things like, say, you know, where's Canada? And you could, you know, some people in the United States didn't know where Canada was, but now when you, after you told them, they would know where, you know, Canada was, but it's, now it's not, after you tell them, they might question which party you're in or something. This is, this has becomes a real problem. If I can't even say sort of where Canada is without knowing which party I'm in. Okay, so we've, you know, we've spent the first part of the talk talking about, you know, some of the things that led us to where we're at. Of course, this could be, uh, you know, entire book uh, and an entire class all by itself. But let's talk a little bit about what it's doing to us. This is probably as big a concern as any. I mean, this is something that's led to uh, misinformation spreading around health things. So here's a uh, poster that's spread around the internet, uh, as, as many of these around whether we should put fluoride in our water. And I gave a talk um, at the dental school research day this year, and they're really concerned about the truth decay that's going on in their world. Um, that's, that, was their, that was their joke. You guys picked it up pretty fast. But in all seriousness, all seriousness, um, InfoWars, if you haven't heard of InfoWars uh, and the, the sort of infamous individual that runs him, Alex Jones, this is one of his big first things that he spread around and continues to spread around. And that's just one of many kinds of health-related ish, uh, health issues that spread around. And this, you know, what we talked about in the beginning of the part of the talk is leading to these kinds of things that are having health ramifications. But even more serious than that, if you've been following the news recently around the effects of WhatsApp, which is an, it's a, uh, uh, it's an application that's owned by Facebook. It's actually one of the most popular, if you look around the world, in India and Brazil. It's the root cause of some of this mob-like behavior that's resulting in people getting, getting killed over rumors that are just not true. And they're so concerned in India that they're starting to train people the, um, the, the, the ways in which uh, misinformation can spread on this new application that they're just getting for the first time, but they can't keep up with it. There's no way it can scale as fast as the spreading of messages. And the other issue is that if you look at just the uh, misinformation before the, the 2016 election, Craig Silverman looked at how many engagements, these are sort of shares or likes, with uh, news that um, was turned out to be uh, false rumors and news that came from the 19 mainstream um, different uh, um, outlets. And what, they, what he found um, uh, is that there was more engagements with fake news, more engagements with fake news in the 19 mainstream media sites. That's pretty scary. The other thing that recently came out this year was a study out of MIT labs that looked at whether false rumors travel faster or true rumors. So they're both rumors. And what they did is they looked at Snopes, uh, things that Snopes has debunked as either a true rumor or a false rumor. And then they, tra they tracked these rumors over time and looked at which ones travel faster and which ones travel slower. Which ones do you think travel faster? False rumors. You guys are a good awake audience. Absolutely. Do you know why? You got it. They're yeah. more interesting. They're designed exactly that way. They're selected. Well, you guys they're are not good. designed, selected. Well, they're designed and selected, actually. Yep. So 
Um, my background's in evolutionary biology. That's, that's, that's what I did before I got pulled into all of this. And, and it, to me, it's really striking the parallel between selection um, that people do on rumors and the selection that happens as rumors spread out across the internet or memes spread out across the internet and natural selection as it occurs in the wild or artificial selection as it occurs on a farm. So on the left we've got artificial selection here. These crows uh, prefer green beetles, yum, our favorite, and, and they don't like the orange ones. And so over time, right, the green beetles get eaten up, the orange beetles leave more surviving offspring, they, they, they're able to reproduce better, and over time we get this change in the, in the color of the beetles. Now, the same thing, of course, there we're talking about, about genes, we're selecting on genes, but you can select on memes as well, you can select on ideas. So for example, um, this Icon has cheeseburger cat, this, uh, this was a very selected, uh, successful meme um, on, on the internet. That, uh, that exploded across the internet because the cat wants a cheeseburger but it can't spell. And that's, that's internet level humor. Um, I like it. Uh, it, <laughs> it spread, it was, you know, there were a lot, a lot of people put out a lot of different you know, pictures and things, and some took off and some didn't, and this one did. And so when you actually, you know, when you actually get on the internet and you look, what you're going to see is something that's actually been shared a lot because that's what's landing on your internet accounts. So selection on the internet favors drama and it favors surprise, right? And so the things that you're ending up seeing are the ones that other people have shared repeatedly. So you've got these layers of selection and then people are crafting they're trying to craft their memes, they're trying to craft their stories, they're trying to craft their ideas in ways that's going to cause them to spread so that you end up seeing them. And so natural selection is just generating, you know, for natural selection the variability is just being generated at random, just the, the hapless chance of mutation. But with these new stories, people are learning what works, what gets shared, how can I write stories that are going to take off across the internet. And again, the unvarnished truth can scarcely compete. And this is just a recapitulation of a very, very old idea. Uh, you know, Jonathan Swift says in 1710, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. This is exactly what we saw on Facebook. Um, this has been rephrased by the Italian computer programmer Alberto Brandolini for the 21st century. Um, he says, the amount of energy necessary to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than to produce it. And this is exactly the case. A, a crazy idea starts spreading out, and it's impossible to catch up with that idea. You try to refute it, you try to argue against it, and it just takes off on its own. And you find yourself uh, many you know, decades later still arguing about fluoridation or chemtrails or um, vaccines and autism or whatever the case may be. So people, as I was saying, are, are terrible editors. Um, we might hope that algorithms would be. Well, I, I wish they were. And, 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 Car and we, you know, we hear this all the time, and we, and we understand that. You understand that. We are poor editors. But the thing is, algorithms don't get enough attention. And that's the world we live in. We li so much of our information is, sh is shifted, it's filtered, it's, it, it's, it lands in our lap through algorithms. And they're not doing so well for us if we're, if we're considering sort of quality uh, uh, information. So let me give you an example. My seven-year-old is really into space right now. And uh, when, when I'm at my computer, my, my kids are always coming up to me and asking, oh, can we look at that, you know, that, that live feed of the International Space Station on YouTube? So we were, we were there looking at it one time, looking at how, you know, in a very sh relatively short amount of time, you move around the Earth, you can see the different continents that you're going over, you can see weather patterns, et cetera. 
And at the bottom of the screen, when looking at the recommended videos, I noticed this. These are just the top ones we have here. Is Earth actually flat? I'm seeing, is Earth actually flat as I'm looking at this spherical object going around? I couldn't believe this. And then I look through and I see, you know, there's others, you know, strange, you know, like shapes of the Earth. And I went into incognito mode. So this is the mode where I try to, to you know, sort of fool the browser not knowing anything about me. I thought maybe it's because Carl and I sort of been studying misinformation that it's sort of throwing this kind of thing at me. It was even worse in incognito mode. But it's not just the recommender system. So of course YouTube and these other uh, software systems that are trying to keep us on the platform and taking us to these you know, you know, sort of crazy videos are a lot of times divisive. I want to stress that actually, Jevin, because what they've found, I mean, so you're, they're training up these algorithms to recommend videos that people are likely to click on. And one thing that they've found at YouTube is that people like to click on more extreme content. And so more extreme, like, you know, more crazy, more rumor-like. Again, the unvarnished truth is not good enough to get people to click. And these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms learn this. They're very good at figuring that out. And what has ended up happening is that when you start out on any kind of sensible content, uh, within a few clicks of following recommendations, you'll end up in just absolute conspiracy theory lunacy. So there's sort of a, there's a, you know, you, you, you end up finding all of these crazy well, things. Well, we, we actually played a game in our class where we played uh, five degrees of Alex Jones to see how fast you could find yourself in an Alex Jones. Actually, we had a hard time getting to it, and partly that I think YouTube's responding to maybe even that game in particular. They threw, well, they threw but, him off. <laughs> they threw the, him off, yeah, yeah so, which is, I, I think, probably a good thing. But, but now we live in a world, too, where we depend on our search engines as much as we depend on water in our homes and electricity in our homes. And so when we use a search engine, there's almost this implicit truth that comes along with those results. And so Carl and I tried to think about the craziest question we could think of to give a search engine and just see if it would just not get anything back. There couldn't possibly be websites supporting the craziest thing. So we say, do vaccinations cause shaken baby syndrome? <laughs> There's just no way that someone has actually built a website to make a case against this. And lo and behold, what do you find? Right, so you find all these conspiracy sites, and you find, and the reason that Google finds these conspiracy sites is because this is such a fringe rumor that no one has debunked this. There are not scientific articles about this. People have not tried to come directly and address this issue uh, the way that people have. You know, there might be a website that says smoking doesn't cause cancer, but you know, that's been very well addressed. Anything that's sufficiently wild and out there, um, the, you know, you'll have someone stating it, but someone, you won't have anyone stating that it's not true. And so Google will just take you to the statement of the fact. This is a place where algorithms are letting us down. It is. They're letting us down, and this is where we need to educate the public, which we're going to get to in just a second. The other big thing that's going on that I think many of you are familiar with but maybe have never engaged directly with one, and that's bots. I could give an entire lecture about the role that bots are playing in our information environments. They're everywhere. What are they? Their bots are these, uh, they're automated agents that you can program to do certain things. Like, for example, there are good bots that might respond to um, earthquake uh, sensors that would, you know, you could set it up so you could communicate these, you could make the, the bot communicate with a, a seismic um, sensor and then it would spit out information as fast as possible to a city that's receiving those shakes. But there are many times, actually much more often, you find bots are doing nefarious things. 
and they're easy to code. Uh, if we had time, I could show you how to do it in a relatively short amount of time. And they are flooding our system. Social media companies have not wanted to talk about the bot problem because what it does is it, it doesn't sound as good to have 80% of your, your users or tweets that are going out being pushed by bots. Actually, Pew Research just did a, a recent study looking at how much, how, what proportion of the links are being run by bots. And it's not just bots. I mean, bots are related to fake, uh, fake accounts, which they're related. Uh, the, the two are related, but there's, there's some non-overlapping areas. But then not too long ago, this headline just slipped under uh, under the rug of the, the news. It didn't go viral, which I was hoping it would. Mark Zuckerberg had to, show up, he had to show up in front of Congress and talk about what was going on. He sent some of his other VPs in front of Congress. And it's sort of a little byline at the bottom of one of the reports said that Facebook has dis disabled 1.3 billion fake accounts over the past six months. And they were kind of thinking that might be a way that they, they spun it positively by saying, say, he, see, we're, we're sort of cleaning up our mess. But the research community and others had been asking for a long time, tell us, how many actual real users do you have on your system? And what they'd been advertising for so long, even up to six months ago, was that they had 2.27 billion users. So if that's the case, how could you be killing 1.3 billion fake accounts? This is such a problem, and it keeps getting sort of wiped under the rug. If, if most of what we're engaging with, if, if everyone knew that this was an actual bottom engaging or a fake account or a duplicate account, maybe that would change the way people sort of use these services. Now, their claim is that, well, these are sort of fake accounts coming on, and if you add it up, we only have you know, maybe 100 million fake accounts. I, I don't care if it's 100 million, I mean, even though 1.3 billion is a, a whole bunch. This is having a major effect. This is what's different than maybe 200 years ago. But there's other uh, issues with bots. And this also went under the rug, which just sort of concerns Carl and I a lot. And during these major discussions um, with the public, uh, you know, with government and the public around things like net neutrality, there's, there's this, this sort of uh, you know, this assumption that we can talk to our representatives. But if our representatives are getting flooded with fake accounts that are stolen identities, and this was a serious thing, when there were millions and millions of so-called comments to the FCC, and most of them were just bots, yeah. that's a problem. So 99% of the comments to that, so when, when the FCC was going to introduce net neutrality, which is going to change the way that we're billed for internet service and so on, 99% um, of the comments that were sent to the FCC were sent by bots or other you know, sources of fake identities using made up names, using uh, names of actual Americans who didn't send the comments. Only 1% of the comments that the FCC heard from the public were actually coming from actual Americans expressing their own opinions. If we lose the ability to, con you know, to communicate with our representatives, we lose our representative democracy. And that's what's a danger here. It used to be that governments were very afraid of people counterfeiting money. We know what to do about that now, but now people are counterfeiting people. And this is causing an enormous problem. This is a problem. And, and one of the, 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 the things that we've known for, the whole, uh, for a long time is that propaganda has been sort of, a, a, sort of a thorn in our side and will always be a thorn in our side. That's never going to go away. But what's different today? What's different today is that it's easy to make money with fake news, clickbait, 
and the kinds of headlines and stories that we've already talked about. The most famous story recently was the Macedonian teenagers that were making a, up like $100,000 a year in a town where the average salary is up 5000 just by making up stories that Americans were clicking on during the 2016 election. Carl, you want to tell me the uh, most yeah, famous so, one? Um, any guesses what the oh, most famous oh. oh, sorry. Darn it, I clicked on it. I didn't mean to. We'll just, we'll just keep going. So, what was the, I, to the, tell the, them what well, Yeah, was. so the most clicked upon fake news story during the, uh, during the 2016 election was this one. Pope Francis shocks world, endorses Donald Trump for president. <laughs> release a statement. This made someone in, in, in Veles, it came from Veles, Macedonia, an enormous amount of money. Now, I don't know about you, I would not call this a particularly ringing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me sort of end this discussion with um, this, this part of the, the talk, and we'll go to the last part of our talk, with the thing that sort of scares Carl and I the most. The thing that scares us the most is this, these dis disinformation campaigns that are going on where uh, these, these individuals are injecting, these institutions, these foreign adversaries are injecting noise into the system. What they're doing essentially is not really picking a side. Many times they don't care about the side. And that's been sort of known you know, through investigations. And it wasn't necessary. I mean, there was some leaning to one side or the other. But if you inject enough noise into this system, what you're going to do is you're going to annihilate the truth in those institutions that we depend on in a democracy. And that's the thing that scares us the You'll most. make people give up on the concept of truth being accessible. And I find that terrifying. And I see us heading down that road. Uh, which is really dire, and so now I, I suppose we should ask, well, Jevin, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? Well, we, can, we should look to Facebook, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> they got us into this. They got us into this. Mark wanted to connect us to, to the world, and he was the genius that connected us. I mean, you can sense our sarcasm, of course. Um, so the question is a society now, what can we do about it? All of you that came to the talk tonight, what can we do as a society? Well, I'll tell you one thing. We probably shouldn't rely on the technology companies to solve it for us. I think it's time to bring them to the table. And you know, as hard as we are on these technology companies, Carl and I, and, and our criticisms of them, they are doing some things. They're sort of you're changing design. They're, they're changing um, uh, aspects of design. They're sort of creating new policies. They're doing some things. But I think that the question that Carl and I have been asking is, should we be requiring transparency? Should we be asking to sort of open up the algorithms at least a bit? It's such an important tool in society now for the decisions that we make. Are there, should we, you know, should we at least require some information about those bots and about fake accounts? and usage and, and advertising income. These are the kinds of things. And we, you know, we, you know, we should just even be asking the question. And for a long time, you know, tech companies have been able to avoid it. But can we, you know, in doing this, we might be able to get to regulate them some ways. But can we just purely regulate, regulate ourselves out of the mess? And although we do think we should be bringing them to the table, I'm not sure that we should go the easiest route, which is to simply create laws against fake news. And this is happening across the world. Uh, Qatar was the first country, really, to, to create legislation and create laws outlawing out, uh, fake news. France followed soon after. Um, Russia has it now, of course. Malaysia. Malaysia has even convicted individuals now of fake news. And as much as Carl and I hate fake news, that's a slippery slope 
to First Amendment degradation. And so it's something that we are concerned about. So this isn't the way to regulate, but the transparency of the algorithms and, and other ways we, we might be able to do it. But even something as simple as just banning political advertising on social media. There are rules for political advertising on radio and TV. Why not social media? Well, one of the really key things, if I could just interject for one second, about, about advertising on social media that is so different from advertising on the radio or on television or anything else is that it is very precisely targeted. You can, you can target people by their interests and their, demogra and, and their demographic and so on. And it is also invisible. It is dark. We have no way of knowing what ads are getting sent out on social media because we don't have access to the accounts that are receiving them and the tech companies won't tell us because these are trade secrets. So we actually do not know what political advertising is being sent to various places. The tech companies definitely cannot be trusted. I talked about targeted, and this is just from a few days ago. This is a rather horrible uh, uh, example of a target class that uh, Facebook allowed. Um, Facebook allowed advertisers, they, Facebook set up their own class based on, this is an algorithm again. This is an algorithm not knowing what it's doing, right? So the algorithm said, oh, there are all these people that are interested in white genocide. Let's, let's use that as a class. And this newspaper was able to go and, and actually successfully place ads to be sent to uh, people interested in that particular topic, um, which of course, if you know, you can probably guess, but this is a, this is a key word for, for white nationalism um, and, and white supremacy. So these kinds of issues with you know, targeted political advertising and, and the, the very notion, I mean, what is truth in 2018? Truth is what Google returns. I mean, it's not so far off of that, right? That's, Google has more power than anyone else in the world to, to determine what we think is true. Maybe Wikipedia comes a close second. So originally when the Fairness Doctrine was introduced, the, re the rationale for the Fairness Doctrine was not, oh, you know, we've got a limited bandwidth spectrum and we need to be reasonable about you know, making sure everybody gets their piece of it or anything else. The reason behind the original Fairness Doctrine was that democracy depended, and this is, you know, you'll see this in the writings of Jefferson and many other people, democracy depended on an informed electorate. It depended on people being able to get information that was complete, that covered the important issues, and that was reasonably fair. And so that was the underlying rationale. Now, in 2018, we're getting our information from social media. We don't really know what's going on. We know these algorithms are massively distorting the information. We know that people are bad editors. We know that there are these um, you know, economic incentives for fake news. We know that there are foreign actors that are involved. But we've completely, you know, to date, left this to the hands of the tech companies. We haven't tried to regulate at all. And I personally feel, as, as, as reluctant as I am to regulate any kind of uh, uh, exchange of information, that it's time to start recognizing the vital role that social media is playing in our democracy and to, uh, and, 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 and to recognize that we may have to have some kind of regulatory uh, interactions there. Um, there are a few other things we can do. You know, Jevin and I realized that you know, the one thing that, that he and I are particularly uh, uh, trained to do is, is to teach, and so we can educate people. Uh, we launched this class calling bullshit uh, a, just over a year ago here at the University of Washington. And you know, the idea was to help people see through the misuse of numbers and statistics and data graphics, because that's our expertise. And that we were going to really focus on what we were expert as. And so we put together a syllabus, and we take people through um, all kinds of uh, places where, the, where there's misinformation, 
coming through in the form of numbers. And, and this clearly hit a, sort of hit a nerve. Um, people were really excited about it. It went, it went viral across the news media. We, we, we uh, had traffic from every country in the world except for North Korea. Um, <laughs> we, we, um, you know, but uh, even more exciting to me, the, the class uh, has been picked up. Parts of the class or all of the class is being taught just a year later at 100 universities. Um, Devin, you want to talk a little bit about really what else you're doing? So, so thanks, thanks. It's something that we both get super excited every day, even still today. And, and the other thing that we're doing now is moving outside the universities and, and, and working with high schools locally and, and nationally to work on bringing the content into um, those classes. So there's a little bit of a BS movement, I think, going on in education, which is kind of fun. In the state of Washington, there's a lot of things we're not doing right with education, but one of the good things we are doing is that there's been legislation, and it's now sort of moving its way, or it's, it's sort of already passed, is, is, is a requirement for media literacy in, in the curriculum in, in high schools, and I think that's exciting. We also wanted to announce that t this week is Media Literacy Week, um, and, the, and the governor um, has signed this, and it's something that's actually gone nationally, and hopefully as the years go on, we'll, this Media Literacy Week will get uh, more press. So this is exciting. So the other thing is, like, what can, what can we all do? Well, one of the easy things we can do, I think, you know, we're trying to think the, the simplest things that we, could, we all as a community can do is to start, you know, is to do what we can to support local media. National media is doing fine, and you should support them too. But they're doing fine. They're getting, they got a big, the big sort of Trump bump, if you want to call it that. They're, they're doing fine. They're getting record subscriptions. But how can we support local media so we don't have these news deserts? It's a real problem in our country and across the world where we're not getting that real rich local news. So support local news. And uh, you know the other thing that I really want to stress, and I, I, I'm very bad at this myself, and I need to get better at it, is try to be very mindful about your media consumption. I mean, you get to choose what to consume, and you don't have to turn the decision over to your id. So I mean, maybe you could exchange this world for, for this world. Um, <laughs> or, uh, or maybe that's not realistic. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, the internet is too important, and, and breaking news is too important. But maybe you could exchange this screen uh, for, uh, for, you know, with this, is, this is a Twitter feed or a series of Twitter feeds for something like this, in-depth detail. I mean, you don't have to like The Economist, I just, you know, uh, but, but, but for something that's, but for sort of in-depth, thoughtful um, content that of the sort that you would have read, uh, you know, several, uh, a couple of decades ago. And what we spend a lot of our class doing, which we don't have time, of course, tonight, is to talk about the many different ways that you can become a smarter consumer of information, things that we're sort of learning and getting better at ourselves, specifically around data and statistics and numbers. But if I could summarize in one slide, the one thing we could all do, of course, given all these issues around sharing, is to simply just think more and share less. If we could just spend a little bit more time thinking um, and sharing less, that's, I mean, that alone, it sounds like such a simple sort of trite piece of advice, but, but I, think it's, I think it's something that we're always reminding ourselves. And going back to Neil Postman, who's one of the favorites, and I was just speaking to someone before we got started about how good Neil Postman was at sort of seeing the future, one of our favorite quotes that he gives, uh, and I think we all should be reminded of, is that at any given time, the chief source of BS with which we have to contend is ourself. And we have to remember that, not get locked in our echo chambers. And I'll end with this sort of positive note. So we have a lot of negativity, I think, in, in the world in which we live. So let me just end with a positive note here. 
The positive note is we've been through these sorts of events, these sort of national and global crises before. They're not solved, but the environmental movement and the Clean Air Act and the Water Air Act and, and a lot of the work that went on in the 1970s, it was a major, major problem. It was having major impacts on everyone's health. And so is today's information environments. We are living in an environment that does great thing for us. It diversifies voices. I would not get rid of social media as much as I have many parts of it I don't like. I would. <laughs> Carl, would we sort of disagree on this? Um, but, but I think we can clean up this pollution. So it's up to everyone. We tell our students it's up to you to go clean it. Thanks for listening. We're willing to take some questions. Questions, don't be bashful either. I know I just ended there. Feel free. We could keep talking too. We have lots more slides we can show you as well. Yes, please, if you'll go to the mic or you can yell it and we'll repeat your question. All right. You fight the fight every day. Yes. I have to say that we balance between paper and the electronics, but sometimes developmentally, starting with paper is sometimes extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. First of all, if those that didn't hear in the back, these are high school librarians, which I think are at the forefront in, you know, in terms of everything we've talked about are the group that really, I think, can have a huge impact. And actually, we're, trying, we're working with librarians at, at several schools. And I live in a library school, so I have a, a, a real fondness for libraries. So, so thank you for that. And I, I agree that, that we need to sort of pull people out in, in, in their lear the, the time in which we learn outside of the digital environment. We should use both, but also just in civic dialogue, too. We should be doing the same thing. We're living too much in our digital world. Let's get back together. Libraries are, libraries are a great place to bring people of different backgrounds together to talk. Or you can facilitate conversations as, as right. you do, and, and not just you know, uh, provide access to already codified material. You so we'll go make... here, and then we'll go back okay, over there. Yeah. Hey, uh, great talk. Uh, thank you much. Hey, I loved your idea of banning targeted political content mm -hmm. from social media unless you ban social media in its entirety. <laughs> okay, I, I, I think the chances of having that get, get done in this country are very slim, very slim. How about other countries? What, what's the EU doing? What are, what yeah, are some yeah. of the, 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 the supposedly more sane political organizations, what are they up to? So, so, this is a, so the Europeans are far ahead on this. They're much more concerned about people's private information and making sure there's transparency and in information exchange. They have passed one of the most important uh, forms of legislation this year called the GDPR. You may have heard of it, the General Data Protection Regulation. It's something I hope we get to as soon as possible. And in that legislation, there's a whole bunch, but they're simple things. Like if your data is stolen, you have to be told in 72 hours. Seems reasonable, right? You have the right to be forgotten. You get to know how your data is being exchanged. And also, um, I, I don't know of any, I know of some discussions to get other, you know, additional legislation around political advertising. But if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be this group, given what's going on with the GDPR. But as of now, I don't know of any specific countries. There may be, but I don't know of any specific to, to speak to. Thanks for the question. Let me just go here, and then, uh, I said I was going to go back here, and then we'll go back there. Yes, or over here. I was curious about when you talked about the fairness document being revoked under the uh, during the mm -hmm. So the relevance. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, it's a really good question. I brought it into the talk for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I didn't want to completely blame social media uh, for, for, for this. I think that one of the major changes, you know, uh, this, is, this has been driven by a whole set of societal changes, and I actually think the fairness doctrine has generated the rise of basically cable news, and uh, instead of having, you know, really uh, fringe stuff on AM radio, uh, now we've got uh, a highly polarized country um, because people don't agree on these facts and they don't agree on the kinds of procedures one would use to establish facts. So I see that as coming out of, in, in, in some substantial part, the Fairness Doctrine. So, the, the, about the, 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 yes, the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, right? So um, while I, you know, again, I tend to be really strongly opposed to regulation of information exchange, I worry uh, that maybe we need something like this in a democracy. Um, the thing is, is that I don't think that applying a fairness doctrine only to uh, television anymore is going to do the trick. Uh, because, you know, as I showed you, half of people in the United States are now you know, getting their news off of Facebook alone, right? And so we've got to think about what would a fairness doctrine look like as it was extended to social media. And, and I think that there's very, very strong uh, judicial and legislative pre precedents for doing this. Um, you know, you could say, well, you know, you don't have the bandwidth constraints you do before, so there's no, there's no, the, the FCC has no right to regulate um, the internet communication without these bandwidth constraints. But the reason for the fairness doctrine was never to uh, deal with, you know, a limited resource. It was always about the necessity of uh, reliable information for a democracy, and I think we're, you know, we're still facing that entirely. So that's that's the fairness doctrine connection yeah, in my mind. The only thing I would add is that there were problems. There, there were certainly problems with it. There was reason for, you know, some forms that there was reason for debate. But given this new environment, as Carl says, maybe there's a time, you know, we can create sort of a 2.0 version. So yeah, thanks for the question. Let's go over here and then we'll go over there. Yes. So my question comes from a place of, uh, I work in tech, but I got a political science degree in college because I am definitely an idealist at heart. Um, I think my question has to do with, uh, you got a bit at talking about uh, having external regulations on the tech industry um, and saying that if we had government regulations that would ban or ask tech industries to be more transparent, um, would that help? My question has to do with, do you think that there's a way that we can drive internal change? So as designers and developers, yeah. you know, UW is a, a leading educator in producing computer scientists, software engineers. Seattle is a huge tech city. Um, is there some way that we can require designers and devs to have ethical standards um, or something. No, I'm serious. Yeah, it's a great I'm question. Totally serious, like lawyers or architects or doctors. I've, I've talked about this with plenty of uh, people in the design industry. I think that, like my friends who work at Amazon who have a huge problem um, with the facial recognition technology, they try to bring their concerns up uh, to Jeff B and the internal company structure, but because of the greed and the power involved, it feels like our voices don't go anywhere. But what about those of us who do care and who do, who really are worried about what we're doing with our lives and what effect it has on society? Like, how can we help drive that change? So, so this is a perfect question um, to sort of advertise some of our programs in the information school. <laughs> so we've been hiring. So we have now we have a, a, a both deans, our previous dean and our new dean, is all about hiring faculty now that are focused specifically not just on tech because we're sort of a tech but we're sort of focused on the human side of tech. 
to get faculty that have backgrounds in ethics and in, in sort of the exact sort of the things that, are, that you're mentioning yourself. We have, a, like you said, we have one of the strongest in the country of HCI communities and computer science and technology companies or uh, uh, programs. And we're realizing that one of the most important things we can do when these engineers leave our university is to have that, that strong ethos about what's wrong and what's right. And you're even seeing with Google's protest of, the, of their employees coming out and protesting. It's alive. I think it is in the ethos of the, of the individuals that are creating this technology. The leaders of those companies just need to see that. So what we can do at a university is, is it require that. So what we did, we just voted on this recently, our faculty is now requiring with our minor and major that no university student will without a whole set of ethics courses um, uh, geared specifically around technology. So this is, this is good. So, so thanks for the question. Thank you for, thank her for thinking about it. Oh, and thank you just for thinking about that too. I mean, right. this is so, so the, I mean, this is the important thing is that there are people in tech who are thinking this way, yeah. who are raising these conversations. Like yourself. And I don't really yeah. know enough about the internal workings to be able to say uh, what the most you know, effective strategy is to bring these uh, concerns to the attention of upper management and, and outweigh fiduciary duty and whatever in public companies. But I think you know, definitely as you uh, create generations of designers and, and, uh, and, and programmers who are, have been taught to ask these questions, you're going to have very different discussions within the companies. And, and I'm not optimistic enough to think that'll solve the problem, but it can certainly help a lot. Great, so let's go here. We'll keep going back and forth. Okay, I, I am an alum of the information yes. school way, way back when it was the library school. But I also worked in web development in the mid-90s. Ah. We had no idea yeah. what was going <laughs> to happen. And now what I really think could help those of us who are not in the tech world anymore but are somewhat aware of it is to see what the curriculum looks like for the tech, for the, the digital uh, information instruction that's going to be going on in the high schools. I think a healthy skepticism, you know, bordering on cynicism, and also being very careful to try and track back your source, see who's yep. funding it. Oh, and if yeah, you could talk about that a yeah. little bit, because that's something that I've tried to do and it ain't easy. Yeah, it is. So you had a lot of points that I think are really important. First of all, I think I think we should be looking at a curriculum. We're I mean we we have boards as you as you know. Yeah, I'm you're, on one of them. You're on the board exactly. We have boards um, uh, for our different programs to help us keep keep sort of up to date and make sure that we're doing enough self-reflection on our programs. Because again, it's the universities, but but it's also what's going on in the high schools now. Because tech tech. Um, education and education around being skeptical is sort of hopefully going to be seeping um, into high schools. And if we're doing that, we, you know, the one thing you said is you don't want our students to be too cynical. And we, that's one of the concerns we've had going into middle schools is that when we teach them all this stuff, we don't want them to have to be so skeptical to become sort of nihilist or, or something. We want them to sort of have some you know, sort of uh, uh, trust that there's, there's truth out there. Right. But I think the biggest thing is just sort of, uh, you know, hopefully uh, having a, you know, a, st a strong relationship with, uh, you know, outside the education community to make sure that we're on top of things. Right, and, and if the public could see and the what, exactly. what that looks like, yep. then, you know, we'll think about it. I, I it'll, totally it'll agree. Give, give rise to thought. Thank yes, you. Thanks so much. Okay, yes. Hey, so uh, I really liked your point about, you know, getting more news from law form articles rather than like, you know, maybe mm -hmm. Twitter or Facebook or whatever. But recently Bloomberg published a very long piece outlining sort of Chinese uh, embedded 
uh, sort of sniffing devices in yeah. major US uh, hardware. And Apple and Amazon, Amazon both like refuted it very aggressively, as did, and then they got backup from you know other sources. So, how can we trust these articles, and who do we trust? And maybe talk to going back to the sources. Then I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that is that is very very tricky, and for something something like that, um, I would I would be very hard pressed. I mean, I'd want to you know like you say, you'd have to go back to the sources. I mean, when we teach the class, one of the first things we teach. Um, you know, we, uh, and, and this isn't going to solve that one because you picked a hard one. But one of the first things, <laughs> one of the first things we teach is is the question any reporter would ask. Uh, you know, who's telling me this? How do they know it? What are they trying to sell me? Right? And uh, so ask that question on both sides. You know, so with, with Bloomberg, I particularly want to know how they know it. I know who they are. I know what they're trying to sell me. Um, but I want to know how they know it. And uh, and and with Apple and with and, and you know whoever else was refuting this. Well, I mean, I want to look at what they're trying to sell me, and I want to look at how credible their. I mean, I know what they're trying to sell me, and I want to look at how credible their evidence is, um, given that. So you know, as that one's going to be hard to tease apart without a lot of expertise in that domain. Um, but I think those kinds of questions can help. Do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I think this. It, it, you know, we actually pull these into our class where we we sort of work. The, uh, through these, you see a lot of case case examples, and each one has you know a slightly different you know uh, challenge associated with it. I mean, but with that one, I mean, we would start by you know questioning the source. We do we, we actually uh, we 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 try to teach students a little bit like fact checkers think, and fact checkers immediately you know jump off pages. They don't stay long on a page. They do what's called horizontal reading, and so they're moving across. They're trying to corroborate. They're they're doing the kinds of um, things that journalists you know, and it's in their most basic but most powerful form can do. So yeah, I mean, that, that's another example. In fact, we should pull it into our class and sort of dig into it more. Cool, thanks. I think that's kind of a hard example. I want yeah, to that is my, a hard I example. Pick, I, want to pick my, I want to pick my example. Um, I, read, I read on Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, website, Goop, <laughs> that, um, that there, there are a set of crystals um, that will, I guess, realign my body waves and make me feel better and live longer. And so I asked myself, well, who's telling me that? And I looked, and this was a, it was, it was a, a medium who had, uh, who, I'm serious, you know, the article was written by a medium who had been told that she was, uh, she was too sensitive to the voices of the other world, um, but had learned how to channel that. Uh, how, did she, how did she know that? She'd had a series of visions, and she had practiced with spiritual healers of many different traditions. Um, what was she trying to sell me? Well, for $85, I can have a bag that looks just like those rocks that you get at any souvenir store. So, um, you know, there are easy ones and there are hard ones. I <laughs> and that was it. Let's do a couple more and then we'll wrap it up. I know some are needing to go and, and we're so happy, happy that you, you, we could take some questions. Yeah, so the last question kind of leads nicely into mine about trust. And so, in the last couple of decades, there's been a noticeable decrease in the amount of trust into um, yes. very in institutions, I believe except yeah. the military, but uh, universities, local governments, state governments, the news organizations, and I think that's part Librarians of still have the press of the public. Oh, okay. Yes. They, they don't trust professors anymore, but they still trust librarians. Yes. Awesome, librarians. So shout out. You guys uh, are doing the, you guys are the Trojan horse of... <laughs> <laughs> and so that's one of the, probably one of the contributing factors to uh, the spread of social media is because you tend to trust the people you know, and that's they right. tend to be sharing these things. And with the, inc with the decrease in trust in uh, large institutions, so how do we counteract that, and then, or how do we improve the trust that the general public has with these institutions? 
That's a really deep, insightful question that would, that would take a lot to answer. Um, yeah, I, th I, think you're, I think you're right. I mean, yeah. I think that is part of why we pay attention to social media. The problem is, is, is that the people we know are idiots. And uh, <laughs> so that doesn't do us any good at all. But, 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 or what not are you really. saying, Carl? What are you saying? <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> no, but what they're doing, they're social signaling. I mean, they're social signaling, they're, they're doing other things. So um, I think this is part of why the, uh, the, you know, this rhetoric around fake news coming from the government itself is so enormously dangerous. Um, is that we're being told, you know, we can't trust the media. The media is the enemy of the people. We're being told we can't trust government organizations like the FBI because they're corrupt. Um, you know, and, I, and I, I try to keep my politics out of our class, but at this point, I, I do feel like this is coming more from one direction than the other. And so I, I think that this doesn't solve the problem, but it does highlight exactly what you're saying. Not only has trust fallen off dramatically, but we have very, very active efforts going on to undermine trust in our civic institutions right now, and that's tremendously dangerous. Um, and you're right uh, also that social media is filling, filling the gaps to some degree. What's happening then, of course, then you create these, we, we didn't really talk much about echo chambers, um, but you're creating these echo chambers as this happens because you can't trust the other side simply because they're the other side. Um, gosh, I'm just and saying. I, and I would, just, I would just add one thing that, um, this isn't always the case, but more generally, you're going to trust people that you're talk, you, you talk to in real time. You might this be a troll, okay, yeah, you might be a troll um, in one form, but then if you are thrown into that room with your neighbor and you have to talk to that individual, you're going to behave differently. And also, you can make, you know, there's b different bonds in the physical world. So again, spanning that the sort of physical world and the digital world might be a way of sort of, you know, trying to establish that trust, which is super important. And that's why I think, you know, libraries and education institutions institutions could hopefully provide some of that, but you're absolutely right. It's so critical to, to what's going on and how to get a democracy to actually work. Yeah, you're actually right. The face-to-face the face -face interaction is, is super important. You know, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to connect the world. That was Facebook's motto. I'd like to sort of unconnect the world because we can't trust. I, you know, I've got 3,000 people that I follow on my Twitter feed. I can't know them at the level I trust them. You can know on the order of 100 people that you have these you know, personal interactions with. And I think we've kind of stepped away from that. We're spending you know, many, many hours a day interacting with very, very distant contacts. And as we maybe, if we were able to step back into real world interaction a little bit more, I mean, this is again, this is, this is the get off my lawn part of the, of the talk. Every generation says, you know, these new, this younger generation is doing it all wrong. But, but I, I do totally think that's what's going on. <laughs> All right, let's go over here. They've been waiting, lights and patient, and then we, we might have to take the other two and come up to us, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more just because I'd like to hear your answer, but I know that there's some rustling, so we'll do one more. Thank you. Um, with private companies like Facebook, Google, and others becoming more influential, arguably even than our federal government in yep. influencing uh, the way people consume information, what role do you think those companies have in protecting uh, First Amendment rights? And also, do you think there Ooh. could be a chilling effect in labeling individuals and organizations such as Alex Jones as fake news? I think you're hitting one of the stickiest, hardest questions for the whole tech industry, and particularly Facebook, of course, because they're the big elephant in the room. But you know, as much as I said before, we, we, we criticize the social media companies a lot and the tech companies. But they have a tough, tough job here because they, they, they want to be a platform. They want to be a technology company. They don't, 
They don't want to be a filter of news, and that can be a slippery slope. And if they start sort of pulling people off, you know, even, you know. Oh, okay, well, Facebook doesn't want to be a filter of news. Google's entire business model is around being yeah. a filterer. They scrape that's, and then they true. filter. So yeah, that, that is don't true. let yeah. them off the hook there. Yeah, we won't, we won't uh, let them off the hook. Um, and I don't, actually, I don't let Facebook off the hook either. Um, but I mean, they have, the problem is um, that t Facebook and Twitter have, have set you know, certain guidelines that sound good on paper or good on, you know, a screen. But they're not, they're not sort of, uh, many times, they don't uh, sort of follow through with it, especially Twitter. I mean, again, Facebook has made so many mistakes. But, but, but Twitter, there's so many examples where people are violating the rules that they've set down and they're not doing anything about it. Now, again, there are sort of rules that have a lot of fuzzy definitions and it's really, really hard. But I think what you're saying, um, which I think is really important, is that if we're not careful, they could sort of move down and sort of you're just might yank the First Amendment right out under us, not even through legislation, but just through the platforms themselves. And I think that's even more of a concern to me than even having a, you know, some crazies on there. Hopefully we can educate the consumers to make them smart enough to not, you know, to, to, to sort of you know, move down that path and to maybe do other things to sort of swamp them out, use maybe some of the same tools of, you know, this is where maybe bots can be in a good form or something. Uh, I don't know why I want to necessarily play fire with fire, but, but yeah, so I, you're hitting a really important point. I don't have a perfect answer, but I, I think. I mean, there's something so important, I just want to kind of rephrase it one more time in what you just said, which is that, uh, is that Google has become so powerful in our lives as a determiner of information and determining who can find what information that Google can essentially uh, suppress the speech that the, free, that the First Amendment was designed to protect even though they're a non-governmental actor. And, uh, and we need to think about that and we need to confront that. And that's part of why I think transparency is extremely important because we have no idea how Google is filtering stuff. They won't tell us, trade secret, right? And it's changing constantly. It's, it's changing based on the experiments they're doing, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they're, they've got allegiances possibly to truth, definitely to shareholders. It's, um, <laughs> It's a complicated mess, and I think, yeah, I mean, we do need to think about maybe things like First Amendment protections have to be extended beyond governmental actors, and these are conversations that, again, we need to have people that are, uh, you know, well-versed in tech, but also well-versed in ethics and political science and so forth to, to be able to deal with these kinds of things. So, I think... So, yeah, so, so no, I was just going to say, so thank you, thank you all for coming. Please, the two questioners, come up, and we'll, we'll talk to you. So, thank you.